You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. Welcome back, everybody. It is great to be here for another show. Uh, it's good to see everybody in the live chat. Um, please keep the conversation polite and cordial, as you always do. Um, I really appreciate that. It just helps for uh, everything running smoothly. If you do have any questions throughout the show, please pop them in capital letters. I'm more likely to then see them, and I will try and ask them when it's relevant to the conversation. Um, we are going to be covering some classic sort of older cases here today. So, yeah, I think that's everything. Let's uh, let's get started. I'm going to welcome uh, my guest, who's now a regular, as always. Please welcome Dr. David Clark. David, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Here we are again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're here to talk about a different case again, which is always good. So it's September, so we're actually in the month celebrating 70 years of the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. So I think let's just start at the start of that kind of year and and what happened. And if you can give us some context to how it all came about and and the implications, that'd be great. Yeah, well, um, as you know, um, it's 70 years um, anniversary of this classic case, the Topcliffe case that we're going to be talking about tonight. And just, just to sort of set the general context, I mean, given what's what's happened with the death of Queen Elizabeth II um, last week, it, were, it was a similar situation back then because it, 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 70 years ago, her father, George VI, uh, had died. I think it was in March 1952. So she'd become queen, uh, even though she she wasn't crowned until the following year. So, so there was all that going on. Um, there was also the sort of... Um, we've got a new Cold War now that's that's going on with Russia having invaded Ukraine. But back then, 1952, 1953, it was right at the the, the height of the original um, Cold War tension. And, you know, it was, if you read the papers and the media at the time, there was similar levels of anxiety. There was similar sort of worries about a nuclear war kicking off. Um, and don't forget, this was only seven years after the end of the Second World War. And there was an awful lot of... Um, People, um, people who were who were still enrolled in the uh, the military services. There was still national service. My father was in the navy at the time. People were still doing like they what they had to do for national service. There were a huge amount of aircraft flying around in the skies, um, military aircraft um, exercises, and Operation Mainbrace. I've I've seen it described as Operation Mainbrace and yeah. Exercise Mainbrace. I'm not sure which is the correct one. Um, but what that was was like this massive NATO exercise to simulate uh, a Soviet attack on Western Europe, and it was primarily a sort of um, a naval exercise. So you had, I think there was, I've got the actual um, original press release somewhere here in my pile. Oh, here we go. Yeah, press announcement: a large-scale exercise will be conducted on Europe's northern flank this autumn with ships, planes, and men of nations of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization participating. So it was a 13-day exercise, codenamed Mainbrace. It began on September the 3rd, and there were more than 150 warships, hundreds of aircraft um, taking part, 
anti-submarine convoy operations, military forces of Canada, Denmark, France, Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, United Kingdom and United States all participating. So you can imagine a huge build-up um, to what was going on. And um, as I say, um, setting it in the context of, of the UFO phenomenon, um, earlier in the year, the United States Air Force had rekindled or reignited their UFO investigation, which had become Project Blue Book. And that was as a result of a really big wave of sightings. There were literally reports from all over the globe, many sort of military incidents during the summer, June and July, there'd been the massive flap over Washington, D.C. that probably most people here will will, will know about or have come across um, either in books or online. You know, there was there was um, F-18s scrambled to intercept objects that had been seen on radar over the American capital. Um, um, both close encounters um, reported by um, military pilots. Um, and this became such a huge thing that there was a massive press conference at um, at, the, at Washington, one of the biggest uh, since the end of the Second World War, where Colonel, I think George um, Samford had to go on TV and sort of explain what the US authorities were doing. CIA got interested for the probably um, for the first time properly um, and started looking at the whole subject from the point of view of psychological warfare and all the reports that had been in the media about this got our Prime Minister at that time, Winston Churchill, interested in the subject. And he he fired off that famous memo to the Air Ministry, basically saying, what's all this stuff about flying saucers? You know, tell me the truth. And he was given a summary of this study that had been done in 1950, the Flying Saucer Working Party, which we will return to, mm. that looked at some military sightings, including a very interesting sighting by a guy called Stan Hubbard, who was one of the RAS top test pilots who I got to interview 20 years ago. And he told this amazing story about um, a really close sighting of a, of a UFO that he'd had at Farnborough Airfield in 1950. Um, that's that Stan um, in the cockpit of one of his um, planes. And I think he'd, he, I remember him telling me that the day he saw this, or the day before he'd seen this thing, he'd, he'd flown a German Pfizer Storch which those of you who are sort of aircraft enthusiasts may remember it's a, it's a famous sort of, it's a plane, iconic German plane from the Second World War. It's one of the planes that we captured from the Germans. And he was one of the test pilots who um, were involved in basically deconstructing and finding out what the Germans had after the war. So um, we'll talk about his sighting. And all this is building up to um, September the 19th, 20th, 1952, which is when exercise main brace was underway there were all these ships um in the north atlantic there were um air crew moving around to all different bases and the other interesting thing was it was also the 12th anniversary of the battle of britain so um lots and lots of raf planes out doing aerobatics and demonstrations over various airfields in um, england and wales so a lot going on in the sky and then our friends, the uh, the UFOs, decided to put in a uh, an appearance. <laughs> so, I suppose it's best to start off with the top cliff case itself, then. So, yeah, where's the best place to start? I mean, there is a lot of intricacies to the case itself. So, you know, I'll let yeah. you. I've got some documents and images to show. So, if at any point they become relevant, just let me know, and I'll I'll pop them on screen. 
Yeah, well, let's let's have the um, the this, the um, the document where um, Flight Lieutenant Kilburn, John Kilburn, who's the key witness. Um, unfortunately, John had um, passed away before I got um, before I started doing these investigations. I mean, I I tried to track him down around the year two thousand, about twenty two years ago, and it, I think he'd recently died. I contacted, I spoke to a member of his family, and it was like, oh, I wish you'd rung. Five years ago, you could, he'd have told you the whole story. So he was like one wow. of the few people I wasn't able to interview. But his statement, which we'll see now, which is that the two six nine squadron? Two six nine squadron. Yeah, he was. Um, um, he was in the RAF in the Second World War, um, and he was in number two six nine squadron, which was a Shackleton um, squadron. Um, early more uh, sort of one of these um, aircraft that they use for early warning. That were part of the exercise, um, and there was a whole bunch of men um, from that squadron, two six nine, who were normally based at RAF Ballykelly in Northern Ireland, and they'd flown to, to Yorkshire for main brace, and they were actually on the ground. I don't know what they were doing; they were waiting to be sort of scrambled or take off in the Shackletons, and nice clear days, a bit like the weather um, we've had over the last um, few weeks before it turned. Um, Clear skies, um, and I don't think it was Kilburn. He actually said, well, probably best reading you what he says. This is the statement he made to the Air Ministry, which is one of the few um, bits of um, UFO reporting from the RAF that's actually survived um, over the years. And he, he, I love this because it's written in, you know, that old-fashioned language that people used to speak in the 1950s when they were making <laughs> an official report. He said, I have the honour to report the following incident, <laughs> which I witnessed <laughs> on Friday the 19th of September. Now, the, I, I, I understand from some of the other sources, because there's a signal as well that we'll look at. Um, this was around just before 11 o'clock in the morning, um, and he was standing with four of his colleagues from number 269 squadron on the, um, on, on I think outside the, the control tower at RAF Topcliffe, which is a um, a, a World War II um, station in, in North Yorkshire, not far from the A1. I mean, I, I, I was on holiday in North Yorkshire a few weeks ago and I, I drove right past it. I think it's still used for training. RAF cadets still use it. Anyway, they, they, it, it was very different in 1952. You can imagine there would be aircraft all over the runway, um, lots of um, people in uniform everywhere waiting for some kind of um, call to take part in this operation. So he was standing there, he was looking at the um, sky, and they were actually watching a meteor jet that was descending um, towards not Topcliffe, but Dishforth, which is, which is another um, aerodrome not far away, probably no more than two or three miles away. And he says in his statement that the meteor was at approximately 5,000 feet and approaching from the east. Flight Lieutenant Paris, who um, is another one of the key witnesses who were there with him, it was him who actually noticed a white object in the sky at a height between 10 and 20,000 feet, some five miles astern of the meteor. So something much higher in the sky, brilliant white in color initially. It then appeared to be silver and circular as they watched it, and it was traveling at a much slower speed than the meteor, but on a similar course. So he says in his statement, it maintained the slow forward speed for a few seconds, before it began to descend. And this is the interesting bit because it, it descended in the classic sort of 
you know, like a sycamore leaf falling from a tree, not like any normal aircraft would behave, like a falling leaf motion. And at first, when they saw it, they thought it was something that had come that had separated from the meteor, you know, like a piece of cowling from the engine yeah. or something like that, or like some sort of exhaust, you know, maybe the engine was on fire and it had sent out like some kind of um, a cloud of vapor or something like that. So initially, they thought they were looking at possibly the beginning of a, an aircraft accident, which is why it took on such an importance. Um, so they thought at first it was a parachute or engine cowling that had come off the, the meteor. As the meteor turned toward Dishforth, the object, whilst continuing its descent, appeared to follow suit. And then this is when they realized this was something totally unlike anything they'd ever seen before. After a few seconds, the object stopped its pendulous motion and its descent and began to rotate. So it started spinning round um, on its own axis. Suddenly, it accelerated at an incredible speed towards the west, turning onto a southeasterly heading before disappearing. And they said, he says that all of this happened in a matter of 15 to 20 seconds, and the movements of the object were not identifiable with anything I have seen in the air and the rate of acceleration was unbelievable. So it's, it just zoomed off at some incredible speed. So uh, this whole bunch of um, airmen who were on the ground all saw it. So a group of about 10 people, including some um, non-commissioned officers. And he said um, the weather conditions at the time were clear skies, sunshine, unlimited visibility. So really good, clear report from a number of different um, military um, witnesses from 269 Squadron. So there's another document I think might need to move on to to get to that, which is the signal that went out. That's the Air Ministry one. The Air Ministry signal. These are the, the few bits of paper that have survived in the National Archives about this case. This is the one. This is a really good um, piece of archive material. So this is... Um, a signal that went out from one of the NATO commands um, copied to Air Ministry of London. And one of the key things, if you can see the bottom, is who it was copied to. Assistant Chief of Air Staff, um, Ops, Assistant Chief of Air Staff, Intelligence, two copies. Um, and right at the bottom, you see Head of, Def head of um, Ministry of Defence for DSI. Now, DSI is the, is the defense, um, the, the, the scientific intelligence section of the Ministry of Defense. So they effectively were the forerunners of what became DI-55, who, as everyone will know, were the people who were involved in active UFO investigations from the 1960s onwards. So this is the beginning of it all, folks. This is, this is 70 years ago. And um, the interesting, you might see that little scribble in the right bottom right-hand corner. Um, this this is um, um, something that's been written on the signal saying um, operations air defence. Ask PA, which is like private assistant, effectively a secretary. Um, open folder unidentified aircraft or objects reported to air ministry. Now that suggests that before this happened, they didn't even have an active folder. <laughs> or file for, the, for occurrences of this kind. And um, Ralph Noyes, um, who was the, um, he was the, he was the private secretary for the vice chief of air staff, Ralph Cochran at the time, um, again, who I interviewed in the 1990s when he was alive, um, he remembered seeing this signal 
because he was really high up in the MOD. I mean, this is a guy who was talking about UFOs and the MOD long before um, anyone else, um, Ralph Noyes, it's sad that he's no longer with us, but he remembered being um, at a, quite a senior position in the Air Ministry at the time and seeing this signal come through and seeing the consternation it caused in the higher echelons of the Royal Air Force. I mean, the, the, the words he used was, oh my God, our chaps are seeing these things now, not just the Americans. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is why I think this case or this series of sightings, because it wasn't just Topcliffe, there were others as well. It, it's really what got the Royal Air Force, the Ministry of Defence and scientific intelligence interested in this subject. And it's effectively 70 years ago this week. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Mm. So I'll take that off. I just wanted to highlight Mr. Ralph Noyes because we do have an old photograph of him. Yep. There he is. That's it. Yeah, there's Ralph. Yeah. Um, so he got to a really um, senior assistant um, principal, which is very sort of senior position in the MOD. And he was at one time, I think it was the late 1960s and early 1970s, the head of DS-8. Now, DS-8 is what became the Secretariat Air Staff, i.e. the UFO desk. So he actually ran DS-8 for a period of about five years. And he got to see all the top secret material. And I remember interviewing him in, I think it was 1989 or 1990. This is when I was first got involved in ufology. And one of the things he told us, about at that time, which we've never been able to get to the bottom of, is that he remembered um, being taken to the underground cinema in the Ministry of Defence main building um, at some point during his time at DS-8, where he was shown gun camera film taken by RAF pilots of UFOs, the things that couldn't be identified. You know, people will have seen all the American US Navy um, films, but he said that he'd seen films in the late um, 1960s, early 1970s, taken by RAF pilots during the 1950s of similar things. Very similar, you know, blobs of light moving at incredible speeds, ball-shaped objects exploding and retracting, that kind of thing. And there's actually letters from Ralph in the Ministry of Defence files, you know, the ones that were released at the National yeah. Archives. After he'd retired, he wrote in um, when he got, you see, he got personally interested in UFOs um, when he retired, and, st and he wrote a, he wrote a fictional book based upon the Rendlesham Forest incident, and he actually wrote in and said, "What happened to those gun camera films that I saw?" And like no one could, no one knew because presumably they'd been destroyed in the way that they destroyed everything else. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Whether whether any of those films were from that period, you know, the Topcliffe case, we don't know, but they were certainly from the nineteen fifties. That's incredible. It's frustrating when you hear things like that because we both know just how often we come across cases and you try and get the documents and it's either, no, they've been destroyed, no, we can't find them, or yeah. some other boilerplate excuse. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, in some ways, I can understand why um, film, like gun camera film, might not have survived because like radar film, it's extremely delicate, it decays, um, they have to, it's so expensive that they recycle it, they reuse it. <clears throat> but gun, gun, the gun camera thing, just for those who don't know what it is, it's for they used it in the war. You know, when you've seen this classic footage of like Spitfire shooting down Messerschmitts, 
you know, the, that footage was taken by gun cameras, which are cameras in the fuselage of the fighter aircraft, which, you know, you, you like when you fire the, the machine guns, you're firing like a gun that, that takes images of what is in front, immediately in front of the aircraft. So there is, there is some stuff from the Cold War, you know, intercepting Russian aircraft, and some of it has survived and gone to the Imperial War Museum. But what happened to the UFO films, I've no idea. But they obviously did exist. No doubt that Ralph was um, telling the truth about what he saw. Wow. If only, if only we had access yeah, to only. something like that. It would yeah. certainly change the way we look at certain things, especially here in the UK when it comes to the historical aspect of the, the phenomena. So, um, yes, moving on. I've now got a document here, which I believe, is this the CIA one? Oh, H. Marshall yeah. Chadwell. Yeah, this is this is. Um, I think when you put this on um, Twitter a few weeks ago, people were, were sort of saying, "Oh, that's new." Um, no one had seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating. Um, some points in that are really fascinating, and I hadn't seen it before. And then I realised where it had come from when you said so. Yeah, well, people don't have much success, do they, getting material out of the CIA about UFOs? Um, <laughs> but I did have a bit of success about twenty years ago because I was talking to at that time. I was in correspondence with Gerald Haynes, who some of you may, if you might be aware, he wrote a um, quite a lengthy article for a, a, um, a journal called Studies in, in Intelligence, all about the American intelligence interest in UFOs. And he mentions a couple of documents in Britain, and one of them was this one. So he, I actually got in correspondence with him, and he said, it's never been released. Why don't you put in a freedom of information request for it? So I did. And amazingly, they sent it to me. <laughs> As you can see, there's a few things um, that have been redacted. Um, but um, he's basically, this is a summary for the, um, for the CIA of what the Brits were getting up to in the field of UFOs. And it's written in December. 1952, so about three months after the Topcliffe incident, and it seems to be based upon a traveller who he doesn't identify as presumably an intelligence officer from the RAF or the um, Ministry of Defence who was had visited America, and it's sort of almost like second hand. And I just think the key the, the key the key lines here is he says the British have a standing committee created about 16 months ago on flying saucers. And presumably, this is now under Dr. Jones. Now, Dr. Jones is is the well-known, um, what was known as uh, one of Churchill's wizards, um, Reginald <laughs> Victor Jones, who was the head of scientific intelligence during the Second World War, head of the Air Ministry Scientific Intelligence. And he was, all through his life, interested in UFOs and flying saucers. Um, and he, he, was, he left the MOD after the Second World War, but Churchill persuaded him to come back, and he was in that role head of the DSI, if you remember the signal we saw about Topcliffe. Yeah. DSI was the, were the body who investigated the Topcliffe incident. So R.V. Jones would have known about it. He would have been in charge of that investigation. And interestingly enough, although we're told that after that um, Flying Saucer Working Party had concluded its um, work, that that was the end of it. They didn't, there was no further interest. This seems to suggest otherwise, that they'd set up a standing committee in, in the DSI straight away afterwards, and that R.V. Jones was now head of that. 
And it says the RAF are action people. The group have concluded that the observations are not enemy aircraft and that none have been over. Fill in the blank. I can only mm. assume that's Britain. But then it says, and this is the interesting bit, which links to Topcliffe, uh, the activity has been quiet and normal up to about 10 to 12 days ago. Now, I think that is just um, an error. I think yeah. he means two or three months ago, at which time the, the Yorkshire incident took place. In some RAF field, there was some sort of demonstration to which high officials of the RAF in London had been invited during the show a perfect flying saucer was seen by these officials as well as RAF pilots. So many people saw it that many articles appeared in the public press. That is that to me is what proves it's got to be Topcliffe because it was only the Topcliffe incident that made all the news yeah. headlines, and we can show you some of those. Um, and this has upset Jones because he realizes that the creation of the correction of public opinion is part of his responsibilities. So here we get into the sort of the CIA's psychological warfare interest. They were upset that the people, including RAF pilots, were talking about flying saucers because it was something they didn't want them to talk about. Yeah. So we've got to get them debunked as quickly as possible. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that was amazing when you sent me that document. I was just like, and I had a few people comment and go, "Where's that from?" Like Sean Rush, uh, who you know he missed the documents himself uh didn't didn't recognize it and so yeah impressive, well, I think, impressive. I think there's a whole bunch of cia documents that they're holding back i know they've released lots and you can get them all on a cd rom yeah. but there's several hundred that are still classified and i think this is one of them but i managed to maybe because of my connection with gerald haynes he, he persuaded his superiors to let me have this one and when did you get this sorry what year 2001 I think it's on the. Um, oh yeah, approved for release. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty incredible. So one thing you did just mention was the, the newspaper. Yeah. So just I mean just just to mention that uh, the reason I think that is definitely a reference to Topcliffe, even though he refers to it as being two or three days ago, it can't be, because the only the only big story that got massive coverage is the Topcliffe. Topcliffe case. Um, you can have a look at some of the headlines now, but it was it was it was a, it got massive coverage. Um, could it, it be that big... he wrote? Could it be that he wrote that memo, or uh, and it just didn't get put out until December, and it just sat on Possibly. the desk for a couple of months? Yeah, that could could be something yeah. as simple as that. But you don't forget, this is 1952. I mean, because we live in the age where you know social media people are reading the same message instantaneously across the yeah. world, things took a long time. News took a long time to reach um, far-flung destinations, even between the UK and the USA. I mean, th this is a this is the sort of coverage this sighting got at the time. As you can see, this is the Yorkshire Evening Press, which I think is the York newspaper, evening newspaper. Can you can you imagine a UFO story making the front page of a newspaper like that today? This is the difference from seventy years ago. Treated yeah. in a serious way as well, not as entertainment, but as a serious sort of thing that people should pay attention to and take seriously. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and, yeah, and the good thing is here is um, this is before they started saying they put out all the sort of um, things to um, military personnel saying if you see something in the sky that you can't identify, do not under any circumstances talk to the press. That's something that 
was imposed um, by DDI security in, I think, the end of 1953. Right. But, you see, in 1952, there was no security black, um, blackout of... If, if for example, you, you were RAF or Royal Navy and you saw something and, and you happened to speak to someone from the media, it got into the papers, as this one did. And this is what and that CIA memo is referring to in terms of, like, Dr. Jones being upset. Yeah, <laughs> because, makes sense. Yeah, they, they didn't want they didn't want people to think our own um, personnel, our test pilots, our naval personnel are seeing these things because they were trying to sort of make it out that they were all sort of um, optical illusions and misidentifications. An awful lot of them were, um, but like today, they were very very sensitive about um, military personnel talking to the media about things they'd seen that couldn't be identified. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, this has got. They've obviously interviewed flight, like flight lieutenant John Kilburn as well. Yep. They have. He's happy, yeah. Happily yeah. given statements to them. So that's. Yeah. I don't know. Incredible. Is there another cutting? Because there's a picture of all the the group, all all sorts of sat around. Here we go. I don't know whether you can see that. You just, just pull that up. The bottom, yeah, you can see the whole bunch of them, all sat yeah. round, and you can see them talking to a journalist. Can you imagine that happening today, immediately after a, a UFO sighting? <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, this is a um, front page story in the Sunday Dispatch, which was like the equivalent of, um, you know, like the Sunday Mirror or the Sunday Times today. And the Sunday Dispatch, if you look at the back copies of it, um, in, as I've done in the newspaper library, virtually every other week they had a front page story on, on the latest UFO sightings. Wow. <laughs> All through How the long... 1950s. Really? That, yeah. that frequent? Yeah, very frequently. Yeah, and it was it was the, the people were talking about it. And don't forget, in pop culture as well. Yeah, the, there were the, the American films about flying saucers that were really popular. Yeah. The the year before all this kicked off, nineteen fifty one was the, saw the release of um, the day the Earth stood still. You know, classic. Sure. Yeah, and big science film. fiction depicting. You know, it was and, and that film was all about you know the, the Cold War. The nuclear tensions and and it was like you know here's a it, the, the the fact that we're about to destroy the planet had come to the attention of this et civilization who'd sent this emissary huge robot and an alien in a flying saucer and basically they paralyze the entire world don't they? The, the yeah <laughs> washington dc comes to a, a grinding halt now although that was fiction as we all know fiction imitates art art imitates fiction and i think people watched it and they thought could this possibly be true and then when you get pilots seeing these things it's like well maybe maybe what was depicted in that film is true and you know maybe they are trying to sort of persuade us using films that you know that, that these things are real yeah just as a little side question what was the the kind of public reporting like in the 50s uh, in the uk for for ufos was there anything did you ever find anything in the ufo archives yeah well lots because um there is a there is a surviving file of the National Archives on Topcliffe. Unfortunately, it's not the um, the, the scientific intelligence file because they obviously did a really thorough investigation of it. The only full file that survived is a, a file created by RAF Topcliffe itself, which has got Kilburn's report, which you've just seen, and there's a covering letter from the um, commanding officer. And what he's doing is saying, "We've already sent you." our file on the military sighting which hasn't survived 
the only thing that survived is this file that's got like a load of letters from members of the public who've seen those stories in the newspapers and wanted to tell the air ministry and the base that they've seen things in the sky as well. So there's like a whole bunch of letters from people in the Yorkshire area, some from Wales talking about things they'd seen two or three years before, who'd written in and the, the base commander had basically gathered all these letters up and sent them to the air ministry in London. Now that file inexplicably has survived, whereas the, the, the previous um, report they'd sent to air ministry, which had got all the statements from all 10 of the witnesses, hasn't survived. Neither has the DSI study that was that was obviously carried out. Um, because there's a, there's a, there's a, I've got a cutting here from the um, Yorkshire Evening Post. You might be able to see that. Yep. That's in November or December. And the Yorkshire Evening Post had gone back to the Air Ministry and said, you know, we know you're doing an investigation. What's the result? And three months later, they said, we, we can't explain it. We've interviewed all the witnesses. And intriguingly enough in here, it actually mentions that as well as being seen from the ground, it was seen by pilots of two aircraft in the air, which is, as far as I'm aware, has never been part of um, this this case in ufology, because it, it clearly was also seen from the air as well. And if you think about it, the what they actually saw from the ground was an object that seemed to be following a meteor jet coming in to land at Dishforth. So my mm. question is, did the pilot of the meteor see anything? And it seems that he did, or, or she did, whoever was flying the aircraft. And possibly um, the pilot of another aircraft as well may have seen something. That, and and also, was it seen on radar? Was it seen on, there would have been some kind of ground control um, radar covering that area. And if this is, might be the time to introduce the DI-55 document from 1967 that I found. Yeah, that was certainly we interesting. We can dig that out. Got it. Here we go. So we've said that a lot of these early... Um, files have been destroyed now this um document which i found i think around 2000 2001 this is from a file from 1967 and by 1967 the air ministry no longer existed because they got rid of the air ministry the um, admiralty and the military intelligence and they all merged into the mod in the 1960s and that's where di-55 then became responsible for UFOs. So they took over from the Air Ministry intelligence section that used to, back in the 1950s, keep tabs on these things. So it's interesting. There was a big flap of sightings in 1967. And this chap, John Dickinson, who was the DI-55C, was his designation. So he was the DI-55 defense intelligence scientist he was, based at Farnborough, interestingly, um, who was responsible for UFOs. And he went out during 1967 and did field investigations um, of about at least half a dozen sightings. He actually had a car, um, spent a lot of his time uh, working on this subject. Um, and all his, paper, all his papers have survived, or quite a few of them anyway, including this one. So as you can see, despite the fact that they were telling people that the files from the 1950s had been destroyed, he obviously had access to them in 1967 you can see the date on there 13th of december 1967 someone had obviously asked him to go and have, dig out some of these old files and he said he says there that he'd, he'd managed to find all but two of the intelligence files on ufos for that for that period 1951 to 52 which at that time they were telling members of the public had been destroyed 
So I think this is a good reason to doubt what we're sometimes told that these files no longer exist because they certainly yeah. existed in 1967 and he'd seen them. So as you can see, he says the files examined indicate that the Topcliffe meteor incident, which occurred during the NATO exercise main brace, was typical of reports about such aircraft at the time. Now, I've never been able to work out what he meant by that. Does he mean to do with meteor aircraft or to do with the UFO as an the, aircraft? I'd say the uh, the UFOs or the objects. Yeah. But, but it's a very strangely worded, isn't it? It is. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So that, he then talks about the meteor being extensively operated in a variety of roles. So he's obviously talking about the meteor jet. But then he, I think the next paragraph is the key one because he says, as regards the particular incident, the object, in inverted commas, only appeared to come from the aircraft. There is no specific evidence in the files examined so far that the object tracked or came from the aircraft. In fact, the trajectory of the apparent object was not established in absolute terms and thus typical questions such as true range have not been answered. Now that suggests to me they've done a pretty thorough investigation, possibly involving radar tracing of the object. Um, where are those files that he's referring to? Because they clearly mm. existed in 1967, and it's clear that they weren't able to identify whatever it was that had intruded on this massive NATO exercise. But he says that he says the uh, the objects only appeared to come from the aircraft, and we've heard the witnesses saying that the they first noticed the objects at a lot higher altitude yeah. than the meteor. Yeah, do it and performing in ways that would not be just be a piece of fuselage or something falling out of the sky if it yeah. shot off. So, yeah, how much of that is based on? Well, he's missing out points basically from what I gather. You just wish you could see whatever documents that he yeah. was basing that on because he, you know, there's obviously such a a lot of stuff that's did once exist, which has either been lost or it's been put somewhere where it can never be found. I mean, one of the things is a lot of these files, if they've not been destroyed, have quite possibly been given to or for safekeeping to some kind of private contractor outside yeah. freedom of information so that they can just bypass freedom of information requests and you're never going to get to see it. And the thing is, the amount of times that we've come across that, if they all do exist, there is a treasure trove somewhere yeah, covering decades, decades, decades and yeah. decades. Mm. But how do you so... prove that? Well, that's the thing. We just yeah. need a a nice source to step forward. Anybody watching? <laughs> you never know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is this is all adding up to why I think this um, not this sighting, the Topcliffe thing in itself is really interesting. But there was a whole bunch of other sightings around the same time. And I don't know whether you want to introduce the the the, the one at Little Rissington, which happened in October 1952, a month later. Absolutely. The the Swinney Crofts case. Yeah, Michael Swinney and David Crofts. Absolutely. But, yeah, sorry, go on. Did you want to play the audio? This is an interview I did with Michael Swinney um, back in 2001. Um, he was um, um, a meteor, he trained students on flying meteors. And they were, they were in this particular case, um, October 1952, he got a, a student with him who was a Royal Navy lieutenant, who, again, I, I, I interviewed. Um, he was um, told quite an incredible story. So he was sat behind Mick Swinney in the cockpit of the Meteor. They'd lifted off from this training airbase called Little Rissington. 
in Gloucestershire, and they, I think they got to about 5,000 feet. They just burst through this sort of cloud cover and looked up. And the, the, I'm going to use a prop now. I've been drinking from this glass, <laughs> this glass of wine. And the way he described it to me, he looked up and he could see. You can imagine the bottom, the base of this glass of wine, that sort of shape. But you can see that moving it in the wrong direction. <laughs> That's how he described it looked, and he, he could see. And he said it was like shining and iridescent, like the bottom of a of a wine glass. And there was three of them in, in a sort of an echelon sort of formation above him as he as he broke through the clouds. And he turned around and said to David Crofts, um, is your oxygen on? Whatever he's saying. Have you forgot to turn the oxygen on? Because he thought he was hallucinating when he saw these things. And he said, yeah, well, we tested it before we set off, David. Yeah, it's fine. He said, well, can you see those things in front of you that I can see? And, of course, David Croft behind him said, yeah, I can see them too. And it was like the radio down to um, ground control to say, we've got three objects above us. What should we do? Basically. <laughs> and... Um, they, they, they were just absolutely stunned. And uh, according to the story, these the they, they contacted fighter command. They scrambled um, it's fighters from I think from Tangmere in Sussex. So then you can imagine there's these fighters hurtling towards Gloucestershire to intercept these objects. And they also picked them up on radar at um, Gloucester Air Traffic Control Gloucester as well. So an amazing incident. Yeah. And it was only by accident that um, I got to speak to both. Uh, Michael Swinney and David Crofts, when they were still with us, both uh, and certainly Michael Swinney is no longer with us, um, and he told the story just incredibly well. So, uh, if you want to play your little audio section, yeah, I will just caveat that you did actually send me two files of interviews, which were yeah. quite len lengthy. So, I've just pulled five minutes out to play now. But if anybody is interested in listening to the whole things if you go into the the description of the video there's a link to a google drive where you can just download the full things but let's bring this five minutes up and i think i captured the best five minutes so that image i just put on so we didn't have a blank screen so ignore that um let me know in the chat if you can hear this as well because i don't want to play it if you can't oh there we go. Yeah, I've just realised actually on the two um, recordings I sent you, that was a BBC interview. Oh, um, right. So perhaps we ought to acknowledge. <laughs> Thank you, BBC, for, <laughs> for that. It was uh, for a Radio 4 series I did called Britain's X-Files back in 2001, and they, they interviewed um, Mick Swinney as well. And I, I love that bit at the end where he talks about when he landed that the guy comes out and says, you look like you've seen a ghost. Because yeah. he, did, he did tell me that he thought it was something supernatural, not mechanical that they'd see yeah which is interesting yeah so sorry about the slight technical issues there guys what i'm going to do um after the live stream ends is i'm going to add that five minute clip to the google drive where the full length ones are so you you don't have to search that out if you wanted to hear if you missed the start because i was playing it quite faint i'll just add that to the folder so you can grab that five minute one as well so the joys of live streaming we don't always get it right so thank you for your patience everyone so yeah, I mean, that was incredible. It's always incredible to hear it from them, isn't it, directly? Oh. You can hear the tone of their voice and, you know, they're getting questioned about could you have been mistaken? Uh, yeah. yeah, so I just find it incredible. Yeah, and, and you know, we were saying about the, the Topcliffe 
story got into the media, but it it really is just hit and miss what gets it reported and what didn't, because the little Rissington case, which is even more spectacular, the one we've just been listening to, didn't get into the media. So that came, that we actually got to hear about that in 1998, I think it was, when um, Peter Horsley, who was the equerry for Prince Philip, um, the Duke of Edinburgh, who everyone will know had an interest in UFOs, um, he wrote a, a, a book all about his life. And in it, there's a chapter on the time that he investigated flying saucers for Prince Philip at Buckingham Palace. And he talks about the case in that book. And that was the first time anyone had heard about it. So when I interviewed uh, Peter Horsley, um, he, he, he gave me the full details about it and said, you need to speak to Mick Swinney. So that's how I tracked down Mick Swinney because no one had heard about this case. Fortunately, Mick was still alive and very articulate and wanted to talk about it. Uh, and I, around that sort of time, 2000, 2001, I got to speak to all these incredible people, including Stan Hubbard. And this, this, he's the guy who's the test pilot that we saw right, yeah. um, right at the beginning. And perhaps this is where the most bizarre thing of all that, it, that we were talking about, Vinny, before the program, I should mention <laughs> that Stan Hubbard, who was one of the RAF's top test pilots at the time, who saw, had like a very close encounter with effectively a flying saucer. I mean, we can show you the drawing he made of what he saw or the artist's impression of it. This is the guy who saw um, this thing on the airfield at Farnborough in 1950. Um, now, I've I've got two images, haven't I? I've got the one that he, the, the black and white one, but then I've got that color one. Which one do yeah. you want to show? Well, just show both because the, there's, okay. the, there's the black and white drawing that he did for Klaas Van in of UFO Sweden. Yeah, that that's that's. I mean, what he saw again, similar to the object that was seen at Topcliffe, like a discus shape. That's how he, the way he described it to me was almost like you know back in the 1950s when we had sports events at school. And people used to throw like an old-fashioned discus, you know, like in the yep. Olympic Games, a bit like that. And this thing sort of approached him, broad daylight. He was standing on the airfield at Farnborough, the Royal Aircraft Establishment. And this thing, it was like, it was like, um, how did he describe it? Like, well, as he says, they're like a mother of pearl, and it was sort of moving like this, in a weird sort of way. Again, similar to how the object at Topcliffe was described, you know, like drop like a, a, a falling leaf. Yeah. Which is is not how mechanical aircraft behave, and yet this is how this object was behaving. And he saw it again several weeks later when they were waiting for Wimpy Wade, who was one of the RAF's top test pilots, to come into land. And this time he was with a whole bunch of RAF officers, some quite senior people. And he, he, he said it was pandemonium because they were running around trying to get binoculars, and this thing was like zooming around in the sky. And he his his story was featured in the Flying Saucer Working Party report, which was the thing that was um, seen by Winston Churchill. Now, the really bizarre thing about this was, I didn't realize this until a few weeks ago when I started putting the notes together for this program. It turns out that, you know, I mentioned that the 20th of September, 1952, was the 12th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Now, Stan Hubbard was in Yorkshire. Uh, he was in 92 Squadron, and he was leading some of these um, displays, flying meteors, <laughs> for the Battle of Britain display on the very day that the Topcliffe incident happened. Now, don't you think that is a bizarre coincidence that he's the guy who saw this flying saucer two years earlier on two occasions? 
and the day he's in Yorkshire flying around in the same vicinity for the Battle of Britain day, something very similar appears in the sky over RAF Topcliffe. Now, is that the case that, you know, there's something about Stan Hubbard that attracted flying saucers? Or is it, is it a complete coincidence? But to me, I just find that absolutely baffling and mind-blowing. And I just wish Stan was still around and I could ask him about it because it didn't occur to me at the time I interviewed him to ask him about this. He must have known about it. Yeah, absolutely. You'd think that's, that is an incredible coincidence if that's the case but and then yeah i mean we have heard many people over the many years talk about certain people do attract these kind of things i mean that, yeah it's incredible um i'm just going to move on to this other image so let me just that that's his head that's there down. isn't it that's in there yeah in, in the cockpit uh so this one yeah yeah is it andreas olsen that did the um this is an artist impression that was done for the ufo sweden group uh, richard richard svensson oh richard svensson yeah um which I think is quite a good depiction of, of what um, Stan Hubbard said he saw. So this thing, this is approaching the airfield, and he actually he was standing on Farnborough Airfield. For anyone who's been there for the Farnborough Air Display, oh yes, this is early one August morning, clear sky. There was only him there, and he'd got sunglasses on. He said, and he said he saw this thing come towards him. He took his sunglasses off, thinking, "Am I hallucinating?" And he said he just <laughs> approached him, and he was like spinning round, and he could he could. He, smell um ozone coming from it and like this fizzing sort of like almost from an electric um, uh, like a huge electric power station he could he could hear this fizzing noise coming from it and he just zoomed off into the distance and he said it, it was definitely something not made on this earth is the only way he could describe it and i do think his 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 story is probably one of the most convincing I've ever heard. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a skeptic about these things, but I can't explain it. And then whatever it was came back in September of that year and then put on this amazing aerobatic display in front of the control tower in full view of all these um, RAF officials. And I think that must be what Marshal Chadwell is referring to in his memo, because he talks about a lot of RAF officials seeing this thing. I think he's got yeah. that mixed up with Topcliffe somehow. So he's combining right. these two stories, but they do, there does seem to be a link between what Stan Hubbard saw in 1950 and the Topcliffe incident. Absolutely. And you mentioned there about yourself being a skeptic. I think that's one thing that I, I really want to make a point of is that if we've talked about these cases just today, we talked about the Bentwaters Lake and Heath on a previous show. And yeah. you admittedly, there is no way of explaining these things from a skeptical point of view. So, I mean, I'm sure there will be some debunkers out there who will have, have a field day with these kind of cases. But, you know, this is why I think these cases, A, are really important, and B, they almost seem like they're going to be forgotten about if we don't keep talking about them and, and presenting them, because they do have relevance and they bear resemblance to a lot of cases that we see in modern times. With, Absolutely. You know, yeah. so I, you know, I think that's why these are so important. So, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, is there anything else? Have we, we missed yeah, anything? I mean, <laughs> perhaps we ought to give Ed Ruppelt a mention. Yeah, yeah because um, Ed Ruppelt was Captain Ed Ruppelt of the US Air Force. He was the head of Project Blue Book at the time. This is during the period when there was all these Washington sightings. And I, I just think it's interesting just to um, mention what he says about Here he is. Yeah. Um, and he wrote this book, which is effectively his memoir of his time on Project Blue Book in 1950s. 
This was published in 1956. And he actually talks about the Topcliffe incident in there. Um, and he, he, he says that, I don't know whether there's any significance in this, but just, just to, to quote him, he says that before main brace, he said that someone in the Pentagon had half seriously mentioned that naval intelligence should keep an eye out for UFOs during Operation Mainbrace. Um, <laughs> he didn't know whether this guy was joking or not, but it doesn't. It is an intriguing little anecdote that almost sort of as if they were putting on a demonstration. Whether it's the CIA that was putting on the demonstration or not, we don't know. But there was a. I mean, we talked about Topcliffe, but there was at least two or three sightings from the ships as well. Um, the U.S. Um, aircraft carrier Franklin Roosevelt, um, there was some photographs taken of something that had been seen in the sky from, from the aircraft carrier as well, which have never been published, which I think is are in the Blue Book file somewhere. But he, he says in his book that he talks about the Topcliffe case, and he says, classic line, it was these sightings, i.e. Topcliffe, I was told by an RAF exchange intelligence officer in the Pentagon that caused the RAF, the Royal Air Force, to officially recognize the UFO. So that was wow. 70 years ago, it's the 70th anniversary. So effectively, all the sort of military interest in this subject in the UK stems from these incidents that we've been talking about tonight. And that's why I think they're so important. And, you know, it's, it's the 70th anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always learn so much when we you know, we, we talk about these cases for weeks before we do the show and I, you know, you send me the documents and, and then I go and do some digging and they are, they're just absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I really do appreciate them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably it. One thing I will say, which, I, uh, you know, it, I'd like you to come back and we'll continue doing this. But I think before we touch upon any other cases, I think the next show we do together should really be looking at the Condine Report. Yeah, it should really, isn't it? Because I don't think that I've not seen a, an in-depth analysis breakdown because, you know, you you were the one that got the whole thing released. So, you know, we got that aspect of the story. And then, you know, I'm sure you know it inside out as well. Yeah. Um, and also what potentially is missing from it or what's redacted in it. You know, some good guesses or estimates as to what it could be. So, you know, maybe in a month or in a few weeks time, we can do that show. I, I yeah, there's a make. lot in that report, as you know. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna have to just pick a few things out to yeah. talk about, and there is the whole. Um, I mean, we have actually talked about this before that it, the, 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 um, they have lost it; it's been destroyed. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that as well because that is so that's we'll a saga. That as well. Yeah, it that's a, long a saga time. in itself. So yeah, well, listen, David. As always, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and yeah, everyone in the live chat. I hope you enjoyed it, even with a smart, slight technical hitch there but i will add the five minute video to the google drive which is linked below for all the audio from the the swinney cross case yeah i'm going to be back next week uh, go and follow my social medias to find out all the dates and times for my upcoming shows i think that covers everything so yeah thanks for inviting me on and i hope you've all enjoyed it yep thanks guys see you soon take care yeah. goodbye